there's only that many ways you can transfer tokens or eat, but then everything else is says a lot about you as a programmer. What are your preferences? What languages you use? What patterns do you use? Do you prefer use what storage uh, samples you use? What protocols you use for like swapping assets? How do you like to do your flashbots? What parameters? So any 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 unique thing that you do is a signature of who you are. What techniques you use as a as an attacker, and that's fascinating to read and document. GM GM everyone, my name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with Peter. How's it going? Hello. Just for some context for the people that don't know who you are, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. You probably heard of my project, Blockchain Threat Intelligence, which is a weekly newsletter that covers all the stuff about Web3 security, all the latest compromises, research papers, um, and some thoughts about like where the industry is going and uh, what we can learn from day-to-day activity that is happening. And maybe also the other part is... Uh, as part of Coinbase uh, Unit Zero X team, my team also publishes a lot of research out there about uh, just really deep technical analysis of recent compromises. And again, just sharing with folks uh, how exactly the hack happened, uh, who were the bad actors. Oftentimes we share POCs for what they did, how they did it, and most importantly, lessons that we can extract to secure ourselves. Yeah, that's super interesting. And you have a pretty interesting background as well. You were in doing malware reversal. Um, were you doing just that for basically years on end before you moved on to crypto? Um, what was that kind of like start to where you are now and how did you kind of tr- transition and why did you transition, I guess? It was an accident. Um, I was doing malware reversing for oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a happy accident. Yeah. Uh, I think that's how a lot of people end up in crypto is like we, we stumble upon this field and from the outside in, it looks very strange and weird world. But once you get in, you really grow to love it. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, like my background is malware reverse engineering. Before that, I was doing red teaming and, and incident response. But uh, maybe around like four or five years of reversing, just looking at malware from nation state actors, uh, backdoors, ransomware, everything, teaching classes uh, to... Uh, lots of law enforcement agencies to up-level their abilities to respond. And just I just really love low-level, deep technical analysis. That's, uh, that's what mm-hmm. excites me. And then looking at the Web3 world where I switched over just by accident, I was looking for something new and exciting to do, doing uh, malware reversing for a long time kind of burns you out. Yeah. And there was this whole world of just untapped potential to research and to build with, to tinker with. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have these weird nodes communicating with each other. There's consensus protocols and you have smart contracts and they interact with each other and their exploits. I mean, how could you not be excited about that? So I went all in. Yeah, definitely. You know, what what do you think are the the main differences between, let's say, like Web2 reversing versus Web3 reversing? Conceptually, it's the same, right? You're dealing with bytecode, Mm -hmm. whether you're reversing uh, x86 assembly versus uh, EVM assembly. Conceptually, it's the same. Maybe the tooling is more mature in uh, in more traditional reverse engineering. It's and then, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, within Web3 world, it's decompiler is actually powerful enough that you don't have to go down to uh, this assembly level as often. But what's really interesting to me is that oftentimes when you look at malware, 
you have this isolated sample that you pulled out out of some unknown incident, and that's that's all you have. Within Web3 world, you are looking at a live exploit contract, which is still live. You can still interact with it, and you can still do full analysis of everything that contract has ever done. In traditional security, you have an ex you have an exploit or a malware sample. If you don't know what it did and how was it used, uh, what there's some rare occasions where we're able to do packet capture and we would replay attackers yeah. actually typing and making typos using the backdoor. Oh, wow. So that was fun. Or clicking, we would restore the uh, like the like remote desktop yeah, sessions, yeah. so we'd see them like clicking on different things. That's extremely rare. Now in Web three world. That's the common thing. That's a normal thing. You can see exactly what the attacker did yeah. to use this exploit to attack others, how they did it and what they did with it. And that is even more fascinating. Yeah, it's like a so open, visibility. Yeah, it's like an open sandbox that you can see basically the whole history of the blockchain. And then you can, what, what we were discussing earlier is you can basically detect patterns I guess, timing of exploits, you know, techniques used. Because uh, I guess just in general, as programmers, we can identify everybody's code is different, right? The It's yes. all kind of unique in its own way. And you can see this with exploits as well. Especially true because you can see everything, every past exploit. You can kind of match them with, okay, this guy used this technique here. He tried to switch it up here, but he still used a previous technique though. And so you can kind of link them together. And I assume that's how you do it, which is a very novel approach. I didn't really think of that. <laughs> um, We've been doing that for years in uh, like traditional malware analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime we're dealing, like a lot of time malware has like unique way that they encrypt data. So we would immediately see, oh, these guys use RC4. Very rarely does someone use RC4 these days. Like I know who is doing that or the way that they package the uh, communication protocols like even before i get full attribution i know exactly who is doing that and what else they've done so mm. same thing with smart contracts there are some standard ways that you do things right there's only that many yeah. ways you can transfer tokens or eat but then everything else is says a lot about you as a programmer what are your preferences what languages you use what mm. patterns do you use? Do you prefer use what storage uh, samples you use? What protocols you use for like swapping assets? Mm -hmm. How do you like to do your flashbots? What parameters? So any 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 unique thing that you do is a signature of who you are. What techniques mm. you use as a as an attacker, and that's fascinating to read and document. Yeah, that's that is pretty interesting. And I, you know, with Blockfer and doing this stuff at at Coinbase, have you actually? made any distinctions between, I guess, hackers, uh, even if they might be, you know, different addresses, you know, they might have switched up the contract a little bit. Have you identified anything so far? We, uh, we don't look just, uh, you know, the traditional way to do those hunts is to look at the transaction history. Where did you receive the money for where, how are you paying for gas? Yeah, uh, what we do, uh, on our team, we go deeper. We actually look at the exploit code. And your techniques, and we match you up that way. We don't we don't just rely on simple transaction data. And we do find a lot of stuff that bad actors do, which they thought they were just playing on chain, but they effectively leak themselves and leak their techniques early on, even if it's completely unrelated to the actual exploit, mm. like their early attempts at exploitation. 
that were done oh, from yeah. a different wallet, which is unrelated. But we know it was you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, but, you know, it's kind of interesting that all the hackers are not actually that sophisticated from what I can, what I've seen so far. They don't, you know, attempt to obfuscate stuff. They don't attempt to make like custom bytecode. It doesn't, it's quite obvious they don't simulate, you know, transactions. They don't use private RPCs. Um, you know, I guess even separating their last transaction from a new transaction and funding the wallet and then, you know, moving the funds out of it if they do that. It seems very like naive. The, the attackers I've seen, at least. You might have seen differently because you've done so much research on it. But I think the ones I've always seen, like when shared with Twitter, it's always that. And it's just like, wow, okay, how's this happening? <laughs> it's just so like basic. Because that's where we are. It's we're still we still are in basic way, basic techniques that are sufficient for exploiting protocols. You don't need to uh, like if you look back, we were talking about malware and exploits. There's no need to obfuscate uh, exploit contracts. There are no mature monitoring detection systems today that can reliably identify that there's a contract that is about to exploit another contract. They still look at basic things or they still need to be reliable at finding things like, oh, you're, there's an exploit contract which was configured with a target. And I'm detecting some basic heuristics that are used for flash loans or something like that. That's suspicious. But then that's about it. That's as far as we can get. And then there are no intrusion prevention systems that just because you detected it, but then you responded to it an hour later, by then it's too late. So attackers will evolve and start using these obfuscation techniques, just like in traditional security when uh, malware and exploit, they started using packers and encoders, mm. right? So they, they have all these fascinating techniques how to encode shellcode to yeah. make it, well, for, for a variety of reasons. But once we have stronger detection capabilities and systems, then the attackers will need to evolve. But for now, basic things um, is enough. And then like not even using, you were saying, like not even using like uh, private mempools yeah, like you saw the curve hack and curve hack was sniped and the Euler hack was sniped. Why it's, are they not using private pools? It's just it's just not they're not there yet. They think it's sufficient to to still win. Yeah, I think it's just all all of them are very naive. It's quite clear that they don't have a diverse, I guess, tool set or even knowledge of the space. Because, you know, from my background, I've kind of done everything from DAP development to MEV to what now is exploit generation. Um, and so I kind of know the whole playing field and, you know, for someone that's doing an exploit, I would assume that either just adapt developer trying to integrate something and found something or like a, an unethical cybersecurity guy, like auditor that just finds it. And then, you know, why don't I take, take this? It's obviously like a big bounty. Maybe there isn't like a white hat opportunity of a confirmed, what do you call it? Like payout. So they just decide to do that. Um, and so they wouldn't have any idea of the the whole kind of layout from consensus, you know, relayers, block builders, validators, pools, MEV bots. It's it's very uh, it's, it's kind of funny to see <laughs> from from my perspective, but it's not it's everyone. Reality. There are some Majority. professional operators that that do use private pools, and they're very precise of how they move assets after the compromise 
but we're talking about the majority here. Yes, majority yeah. are still, we're basically, we're not dealing with true criminals. They, they know how to hack, but they may not be as advanced about the laundering operation or the operational security to make sure that they're not discovered. So we're dealing with, um, we are like in the 1990s of traditional security where people are just like poking at the system uh, yeah. and they're, they're just transitioning over to becoming full criminals. Like what we saw eventually with all the, you know, web two compromises in yeah. let's say 2000s, but we're on the way there. That said, there are already some folks that know exactly what to do. And, you know, I'm sure people are researching how, how to obfuscate their exploits, how to make uh, their contracts more analysis resistant. But we're, we're just, it's just not necessary just yet. Yeah. And I think there's very limited things to what you can do, actually. It all comes down to Web2, like, I guess, tracking prevention. Because ultimately, when you do hack, well, you've exposed your IP. And unless you know like Web2 stuff to kind of counter all that stuff, um, you know, how are you going to off-ramp? How are you going to execute all this kind of stuff? It's all just Web2 in that sense. The only Web3 thing is really just the contract, um, which if you op- obfuscate, if someone is, well, knows assembly, they'll be able to read it. It's not too big of a deal, um, but it all comes right. down to Web3, st- uh, Web2, sorry, um, I believe at least. Because that's the, that's the only question you think of if you're going to exploit. How do I get this out of here? How do I not get detected? You know, That's all operational stuff. So, And then we've seen even very advanced actors fail there as well, like uh, the scenario with the, uh, with the wormhole and Oasis recovery, mm-hmm. right? We had a sophisticated hack. They went full degen with the Oasis. They were trying to <laughs> earn even more. And then Oasis rug pulled on them. As attackers, yeah. as bad actors, should they, they've thought like, oh, this contract has private keys. Maybe I will not uh, try to do anything there. But again, <laughs> that's the distinction is that we're dealing with uh, with folks that are very good at on the technical side, but then like full-blown criminals, they also think about operational side of things and, um, and, and other aspects. But we're yeah. not there yet. Yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned that you, well, with BlockFrap, you, you know, you find all these, you basically detect all these hacks that aren't, you know, normally on Twitter that are just multi-millions. They're also very small amounts of like 50 grand less, right? Even some with like a couple grand. How, how do you really find these? Because obviously the obvious way is just staring at the EFA scan all day, <laughs> but I doubt. Well, anyway. anything, anything that goes through block threat is publicly available knowledge. I did not publish anything from private investigations or that is not publicly disclosed. So the source, at least what shows up on BlockThread, it is from a variety of sources, including Twitter, including variety of feeds, Telegram chats, Discord channels. I Mm -hmm. scrape and aggregate all of them, Mm -hmm. but I never post anything on BlockThread, which is completely unknown or unheard of. That stuff would go directly to uh, either a project or it would go to law enforcement referral to investigate. Oh, got you. Okay. So it's not like you're looking at EFA scan and then putting on blocks right after. No. And even if, if, if I would, I don't think I would publicize something that I discovered uh, if it's not already publicly available because there are concerns there. Like if, if there's an ongoing mm-hmm. investigation into an attacker and I just, uh, exposed it out there unless there's a, there's something obvious that prevents the attacker from stealing or making more harm 
I could impede an, an existing investigation. For that sure. would be bad. I've seen on Twitter some guy. He literally just like his only tweet. He only tweets like these tiny hacks or like the hacks that don't get like massive recognition, and he gets like mm. maybe one or two likes per per these hacks, which is like very weird. <laughs> but he's basically, I, I believe, he like just stares at the blockchain or has some detection tool and then like just tweets. Probably it. detection tool. He's like, oh yeah. Well, those right those <laughs> tiny hacks are fascinating to watch, right? Because those tiny hacks is where we have new players in the space. That's where they are building and sharpening their their tools and their capability techniques, right? So that's why I document even the smaller hacks is because I want to collect how they did it and what they did because today they're practicing. But tomorrow they will use what they the knowledge that they acquired, not only how to pull off the hack, but also everything around it, how to obscure the source of funds, where to send it. And they may use that same technique, the same actor for uh, for a much larger compromise. So it's important yeah. to to start watching them as early as possible in their journey. Yeah, you can just document them. It's, it's actually quite interesting. You can make like a whole <laughs> documentation of them or... I, I guess the whole career on, on the chain and see how they progress. That's, uh, it's called threat intelligence. Traditional threat intelligence tracks uh, who the bad actors are and tracks their TTP, so their tactics, techniques, procedures. So how do they mm-hmm. operate? What do they do? And then slowly start building a profile about this group or individual of who they hacked, how they operate, what exchanges they use, what uh, flash loan providers they use, techniques and mm. slowly start building their personas. That's threat intelligence. Pretty interesting. I, you know, I kind of want to get into this field now. <laughs> you are in this field. <laughs> we I mean, all are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and I guess, you know, since we're in, you know, the 1990s, uh, I think that's what you said, but um, of like, let's say, the cybersecurity of Web3, what do you think is really lacking? Um, obviously, the detection tools are number one, what, how can they improve from what they are now? They are improving. I think we're on the right path. I feel like in the last year, we had an explosion of all the different projects that are, some approach it through pure heuristics. They're like building machine learning pro, uh, algorithms to detect uh, and exploit over multiple transactions. Others mm-hmm. are building signature databases, Others are just documenting, just creating large lists of attackers and trying to track them. Mm. We are on the way. We're doing the right thing. The last piece, so just how we went in traditional security, we went from, I guess, detecting the intrusion. The next step is preventing the intrusion. And mm. that will be the killer product, what's needed for these protocols. So how we have white hats today that are racing against the clock to try to I guess hack back the protocol or try to take uh, like front run the uh, the actual exploit. Once we get to a place where we have generalized front runners which act as defenders of these protocols, and then through other channels can return those funds and distribute them back to developers, or you have monitoring systems that operate on on the level of re- reacting in in seconds to milliseconds to an impeding intrusion. And then making necessary changes. That's a it's a really hard problem to solve. It's fascinating, um, mm. but 
that will be the next step. The first step, which is just intrusion detection, you know, the firewalls, the, uh, the, not the preventative step, but just detecting we're on the way, but we should start mm-hmm. thinking maybe two, three years ahead of how the full preventative cycle would look like. Yeah. Which ultimately comes down to com- a combination of MEV and I guess program analysis. Um, and then I guess you could it also be- include like consensus as well of like the builders, um, I guess validators, but you know, I don't, exactly. know, I don't know how that would play out, but I, I think definitely like the MEV side of, you know, generalized prevention. Um, yep. Generalized yeah. front running to generalized prevention doing from profiting from, I guess, front running to saving protocols. Um, we already see examples of that. So these, uh, so what was the latest hack? So curve, we had the uh, MEV by Euler, we had an MEV by that are front running uh, the actual exploits and then returning those assets. So we already have the, the foundation that is in there. It's just that the focus for these bots has been so far just pure financial profit. What if we use those skills, those high, highly low, like very low level optimization skills that MevBot developers have created over the time and applied it uh, to defending protocols? How exciting is that? Yeah, I guess it also comes into play. Like if someone does an exploit transaction, right? And they, they pay the miner X amount, but then they also add, for example, a sandwich, a liquidation, a JIT, and let's say an arbitrage as well. So then you have even more money that they, they would outbid you on. If you just copied their one, you would still lose because they're actually paying more out of those MEV tactics on top of the hack. And so mm-hmm. the only way to actually completely master that is to have the whole shebang of being like an elite MEV team, but also having the program analysis background to be able to like completely prevent it. Um, which, you know, I think that is incredibly rare, first of all, but it is also very possible if you have the right team around you. Um, we had that same thing happen in traditional security. We had, we started with just basic, I guess, companies that were born just doing basic uh, signature detection and then slowly evolving to being basically the fastest out there to detect an intrusion in progress and stop it. And mm-hmm respond to it. So I don't see any reason why it wouldn't happen in the Web3 world. It's just that we have a unique way of approaching it uh, because in traditional security, they could not dream of having these autonomous bots that are sitting there on chain. And like, and again, like if we have like, let's say a packet, an IP packet flying through with an exploit, imagine something else from running that packet <laughs> and knocking it out. Like yeah. you could not believe that you could even do this in web two, but you, we can do this in web three, which is why I'm so optimistic about just long-term security of the space is that we can do a lot of things that traditional security people could only dream of in terms of security. Mm-hmm. We, we're not even talking about having a record of the entire ledger of all transactions that have happened so we can learn on them and do all sorts of other analytical things. But even that, the fact that you can front run the exploit is, is fascinating. Yeah, and I think another thing that's going to be super interesting if it does happen is account abstraction. So someone else executing the hack for them and then not actually realizing it's the hack. So I think that would be very interesting. And also ZK 
VMs. I think that would be the major kicker because obviously we see tornado cash and that's being sanctioned, but then you have these whole, you know, ecosystems of basically that. (laughs) So that would be a very interesting problem to solve with both MEV and exploits, but in an encrypted environment, which is just natural. You can do private transactions and I guess also public depending on what you're interacting with, but then you can also bridge and then, you know, kind of launder super easily. Um, if it's just private, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, how do you how do you uh, detect that there's a there's a there's a hack that is about to happen, which is not in mempool, or if it's in zk, like mm-hmm. you don't. <laughs> there could have been a hack this whole time. You wouldn't even know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for but, sure. Uh, I, I think so. These that, are new now, new novel problems that need to be solved on top of it all. Yeah, yeah, and then it becomes even more. <laughs> an even bigger niche i think just like people reading and writing bytecode is a niche in itself and you have mev which is another niche but then when you add all of this onto like zk and like trying to learn zk at the bytecode level etc that will be just an, and like an insane <laughs> niche especially mainly yeah. because it's like a, a new technology right yep like i wouldn't really say evm is like that new it's been around for a while, but like the ZK, we're at like the very start of it. So yeah, to do like analytics on that would be very difficult unless it's just built in. I think the ZK bridges are going to be, oh man, I can't wait. <laughs> yep. It's going to be That's why very interesting. If you're in this industry, you're not going to, you're guaranteed not to be bored for at least another decade or two. There's always going to be something new. Who even talked about ZK bridges and like private MEV mempools a couple of years back that was all just a hypothetical let's build flashbots and all that and now it's yeah. a common practice so in another two to three years who knows what we have to solve for but for now before we go into that territory we need to solve even the most as we discussed the the basic attacks like that's still uh, an untapped uh, research area of how mm-hmm. do we solve attackers just shooting shooting their exploits through normal rpcs unprotected and visible to everyone yeah it's it's quite interesting and just to add on top of that i guess you know with your experience of the newsletter with block uh block threat and also coinbase what are the most common vulnerabilities you see which have the most devastating effects on on the contract yeah i mean i so i just delivered a talk at uh DeFi security summit and oh, i shared it yeah so uh, you should check it out. It's uh, it basically talks about the top ten exploitation vectors for for most contracts, and it created a top ten list, which is based not only the frequency but also a combination of how often they occur and also what's the total damage. Mm. And the conclusion of that analysis, just for this year, twenty twenty three, and the mm-hmm. conclusion there was it's still price oracle reward manipulation hacks. Right. Right. Yeah just like it was last quarter and then closely followed by the private key compromise which is not even a smart contract issue yeah, it's, it's a security operational issue it's yeah. it's a uh, development shops not implementing sufficient uh controls to protect their keys mm-hmm. um so those things persist so mm-hmm. uh definitely check out the uh uh, the DeFi security summit talk, it's the, sta- the state of DeFi security. That's what it's called. So I have like detailed description of the top 10 there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got that up here. Um, can you know, listen to that actually after, um, 
And, you know, since you do like these very in-depth analysis, analyses, analysis <laughs> on, <laughs> on these uh, vulnerabilities, I guess what are the patterns you really see within, you know, these complex vulnerabilities? There's got to be something that that's always kind of occurring for like a category of exploits. For example, liquidation, you know, you know, something is in this order or like a price oracle manipulation, then, you know, there's also another order for that usually, right? There's always going to be the yeah. anomalies, but I guess you can kind of abstract it in, in like, okay, this, 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 and that's generally it. There might be some extra functions to get to that abstract, but it, yeah, in, in a general, generalized sense, that's the order. So I, I guess what are the common things you see at the abstract level? Yeah, so they all fall. There's there's a template, right? How do you exploit yeah. price oracle attacks? Yeah. Like, well, you need to one. Well, it's an optional part where you need to inflate what you're the pool that you're dealing with. So there's usually a flash bot. Sorry, there's usually a flash loan involved high right. up in the stack. Uh, beyond that, it's all custom. So you have to look okay. at where, like, where what do they prefer for their flash loan provider, then it's interesting to watch how they split up those funds. It's because uh, they don't usually deposit at all. They they all use like different formulas. Like, oh, I'm going to take half. I'm going to use half to inflate. And then the other half I'm going to use to to do the sell. So mm. there's math involved, like how to, what degree of optimization they do to right. extract the most. And a lot of attackers, they don't spend too much time on optimizing the right. uh, like how do how much exactly they need to withdraw. So there's usually like they add like an extra cushion for themselves. So Euler, <laughs> they could have they they didn't need to extract as much as they borrow as much as they needed to, but mm. they did. They just followed like a kind of like a rough equation yeah. of what's sufficient to pull off the exploit. I'm sure the guy was excited to to pull it off, and they didn't need to um, be as precise. So you watch for interesting tidbits like that, like how precise are they? What is the split that they use? Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's interesting to watch for patterns, like do they embed the swapping immediately in the same transaction? Usually mm -hmm. some, some do, some try to just store it all in the main exploit and then they do the swapping later on as a separate function. Yeah, so they, they're these unique signatures for different attackers of how they approach things. Mm. And that kind of, we, we talked about the, you know, threat intelligence and personas mm -hmm. of how people act, that kind of, those unique things of how they do things and in what order and to what, like, what are the parameters that they set is what builds their unique personalities. And if you were interested in diving into that and you wanted to see how the exploit works in general, so Sunweb3sec, they mm. have a, an amazing repo that you can look through uh, foundry exploits for most of the recent exploits out there. Mm. If you should just search for GitHub Sun-Web3Sec, they have a repo of uh, all those exploits. But those exploits were re-implemented by, by the good guys based on the understanding of what vulnerability is. It's a lot harder and a lot more interesting to actually decompile and reverse engineer and write an implementation of exploit precisely how the attacker did it. Mm. And that's what we do on our team is that we don't just re-implement the vulnerability. We do it exactly as the attackers did it. 
with all the weird things that they did along the way. So I usually publish it on my uh, GitHub repo so you can check those out. Mm-hmm. And those are interesting case studies, not in, definitely in the vulnerability, but also like the operations of the attacker themselves. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole super interesting field. I think if I wasn't building my tool, I'd definitely be doing that. But I'm, I'm probably going to be doing it anyway, <laughs> later down the road. But you it's talk very about interesting. Um, I think everybody knows about my tool because I talk about it a fair <laughs> bit. <laughs> um, fair enough. But yeah, TLDR, for the people that don't know, it's a it's basically a program analysis tool for bytecode that generates exploits. So it's on the other end of this. Not saying I exploit anyone, but it's uh, it has the possibility of doing it. <laughs> it. It basically, you know, finds the path that has the exploit, generates the contract, and then you can do whatever you want with that contract. Basically, um, I just do it for the fun, like just for the giggles, um, and just to, you know, initially I thought this could all be automated in some way, and I wanted to prove myself that that's true. Obviously, people were like. Oh, it's just impossible, highly improbable. It's this computer science thing that's just, you know, a very difficult problem. And I'm like, I could solve this. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. I would say it's, it's, it's a stuff. hard problem. Yeah, exactly. It's very complex and difficult, but that doesn't mean it can't be done, right? Um, just give me enough yeah. time and not. But. And and that that problem has been addressed and, and targeted. In, again, I like drawing parallels to traditional security because. We don't operate in a vacuum, and there are a lot of lessons which can be extracted uh, from it. Mm-hmm. There've been people have been building tools for uh, for automatic, to to some degree, automatic exploit generation for decades. Solvers, symbolic execution. People have been doing this a lot, and then we're dealing here with EVM, which is a significantly much more constrained environment. So we're not dealing mm-hmm. with you know you try to exploit a browser, and you have to deal with the complexity just blows up after a certain point. Like you're dealing with image generation, network protocols, and UX, and fonts, yeah. and all sorts of stuff. And you're supposed to consider either one part of it or all of it together to try to write exploits. And yeah. here, here's your EVM. <laughs> There's no external I.O. Yeah. You just have to deal, like, you're just executing bytecode. Can you track, can you go through all possible paths and find an exploitable path? Mm-hmm. Sure. Sounds like a lot more solvable problem than trying to exploit a browser automatically. Oh yeah, definitely. I think there's so much beauty in the in the blockchain space because it kind of is like the gateway into everything. Uh, from my experience, like you know, I, I would have never gone into cybersecurity if I didn't, you know, build like a, a DAP, and I would have never, you know, wrote a website. I think if I didn't build a DAP. <laughs> And then, you know, get into like algorithms and high frequency trading. Wouldn't have done that without, you know, getting into crypto. I think it's like a very easy way to kind of get into everything. But then it gets like, it ramps up very quickly the more deeper you get. And then it it becomes very applicable to everything else, which is really like quite interesting because it's not only coding, it's also financial, you know, you have your teams or like project management, et cetera. It's like everything you could possibly want all in like one very constraint sandbox um I, I think there's a lot of beauty in being able to kind of do what you want in a very constraint constrained manner you have like these set of parameters of the bounds of what you can do in an evm but obviously people try and push the bounds as much as possible while being in those rules 
And I think that's very, very interesting and kind of makes it fun, especially the PVP aspects, which is kind of mm-hmm. gamified with the money. <laughs> it makes a whole lot of, a whole lot better, I think. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. This is a, it's a new untapped industry with a lot to build and explore. And it's so exciting to be early in it. So a lot of people, they say we're mm-hmm. early in cryptocurrency for a variety of interests, right? Uh, for investment, mm-hmm. for profit, for project building. I'm excited to be mm-hmm. very early in the space because the, like I, like I've been doing security for, for a while and I always had this like mm-hmm. nagging feeling, you know, everything that I'm researching and doing, someone probably did this already in the eighties or nineties, like the mm, you know, yeah. people known about these attack techniques and exploits and reversing for a long time. And here you are in web three and it's all new and you oh, are yeah. at the frontier, figure it out as you go. And it's all fascinating and it changes. We are building like the pillars of what other people are going to stand on, all the foundation of what other people are going to build on top of, basically. Yeah, like it, it feels uh, you're an explorer and you're just, you're you're learning new things every day. How, how awesome is that? What, what else would you want as a security professional? Uh, yeah, I think just in tech in general, it's like... In tech in general you know, too, yeah. I think it doesn't really get better apart from, you know, you're at the very front of the pack um, and there's no one to depend on you, you have basically have to figure it all out and try and push the realm of what's possible and kind well, of we have dependencies. yourself wrong. We can learn from history. So history is... Of course. I, I wish the industry... Our, here's a weird observation. It feels like the Web3 security and Web2 security worlds are kind of like separate. They're like two separate islands. Or rather, mm-hmm. we're a ti- Web3 world is a tiny little island that is slowly growing and then you have this mass landmass, which is Web yeah. two security. It's been existing yeah. there for decades and decades, and it's it's funny to observe that the two are really part of one big thing, and we can learn from each other. And yet, the Web three world, I feel like we have our own conferences, but I rarely see like Web three talks on like traditional Web two conferences. Mm. And then we have our heroes, we have our personalities and researchers, people writing amazing research. Like, like I mean, your your the stuff that you put out on bytecode analysis, cold data reversing, like all sorts of fun stuff. But how many people in Web2 world are even aware that there's this whole community and there's this amazing research that is happening right now? The answer is very few, surprisingly. And I don't know why there's this like separation because like if we explain what's going on, like every time I talk to someone in Web2 world, they get excited. It's like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. But why haven't I heard of that before? And mm. I don't know. It's like there's this some some div- unknown divide that is between us. Yeah, I think it's... And yet there's so much to learn from each other. I think it's mainly because when you think of crypto as an outsider, mm. you think of Ponzi scams. Yes. And it just has a negative connotation. And well... You know, that's what I thought as well <laughs> when I got into <laughs> it. And, you know, you start getting into it, do some DAP development, you start realizing everything is actually a Ponzi scheme. And then you're like, oh, interesting. Let's uh, let's try and go deeper. And eventually you learn more. And I think it really hits you that it's super interesting once you get like very deep into it. Because at surface level, it is actually kind of just Ponzi's, like 99% Ponzi. Nice. But everything, like, the architecture, the infrastructure, the tooling, I think that's where all the fun is. 
And so you're playing this game with the Ponzi's and the people trying to make money off other people playing the Ponzi's. <laughs> so it's like, <clears throat> it's like, um, you have like these very critical, I guess, roles and tooling that you can build. But I guess from the outside world, you don't realize that until you're actually in the game itself. Um, yeah. I think there's a saying for that. I don't know what the saying is. So it sounds yeah. like, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it sounds like there's a need for, I guess, more transparency or better outreach to explain the work and research that we're doing. Like, where is the Mr. Robot talk, not talking about? sticking raspberry pies into power plants where is the mr robot episode <laughs> or equivalent where someone is uh front-running uh attackers to save mm. a multi-billion protocol yeah i think i think there just needs to be more people willing to make content and share their experiences because that's ultimately what like you know netflix will do or mm -hmm. some big content distribution company um, they have to base it off something. And, you know, there needs to be like headlines of to first get their attention. Then you need to get those people that were in the headlines kind of, you know. We're creating, it seems them. like, headlines every week uh, with all oh, the yeah, IP compromises. Twitter is just, just, it's basically content machine for CT, crypto Twitter. Like it never gets boring, right. which is just insane because it's like, what other industry is there something happening almost every day that's just like groundbreaking? You know, like multi-million dollar hack today, probably it's going to be with someone, like a couple since until this is released <laughs> or like even some tomorrow, you know? Well, it, that's another thing is that probably other industries do have things happening all the time. It's just that because they are so opaque, like what was the last time you heard of a T-Mobile hack, right? It's probably mm -hmm. happening right now as we speak, but no one knows about it until T-Mobile needs to disclose, disclose it or someone picks up all those, all that data from some some uh, form, right? But in in our world, anything that is happening is live, and everyone can see it. Mm. So there's a lot more. That's why maybe we have a lot more buzz and a lot more news coming out because we're we're watching the chain. We we see what's going on. It'll be very interesting if someone made like a a live news show of just like if they did this, you know, the preventing generalized front running stuff. And they made like a live stream show. They would look like news report on them, like front running them. I think that'd be pretty funny. Probably would happen as well. To be honest, I'd do it. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, and, and you know, just to just to think of like the future possibilities of like exploit generation, you know, reverse engineering, etc. For crypto, what are your thoughts on on AI playing a role in all of this? It already is. So we know that. Projects are already using, they're trying to build models of what, uh, what transactions look like, what exploitation looks like. So you're not looking at one transaction in on its own. You try to see patterns. Like so Again, I'll refer people to the DSS talk, so I don't mm. duplicate myself. But here's a concept of a kill chain, right? Which is like a yeah. model of how you think from start to finish, how you prepare for the exploitation all the way to executing it and laundering it. So they try to, people are already building models to, to see those patterns. And that's the machine learning is perfect for that. Like trying to learn and see and detect those patterns. So you don't have to do it manually. So that's, that's already in place. People are already playing and experimenting with that. Yeah. I, I think, I think uh, just in terms of uh, security detection, we must rely on machine learning just because of how much data we have to deal with and the difficulty of, 
I guess you have a few insane people. Like I'm spending every single week looking at each hack and trying to figure tease out like what's the exploitation vector, who is the attacker, where do they get the money from, where do they go. This yeah. is a very manual, painful process. I oh, just yeah. choose that pain. I don't know why I enjoy it, but <laughs> I just choose it. But then imagine if we sent out and built a model on the entire body of all compromises through the years mm. and and used it to feed our def defenses. That sounds mm -hmm. an amazing prospect. Oh, yeah. I think for me personally, when I finish my, my exploit generation tool, and when it gets to you know the MVP state, I want to you know eventually make it more sophisticated, etc. But then I want to you know train the outputs. I don't want to train like an AI model based on the outputs and, and inputs and kind of like what kind of process it takes the heuristic way because that's what I've developed over the years of intuition and obviously doing it for you know months straight, um, really getting into the weeds. And I want I can easily convey that to someone else because exactly. I have in depth knowledge. And so it's the obvious step from, you know, when you have a tool and you have a very in-depth knowledge of building, you can obviously kind of train something else to learn that. Exactly. And that's why data really. And you just kind of like mutate it in slightly different ways and generate your own data really, if you have something that's good. <laughs> so that's debate, like building offensive tools, right? Mm -hmm. Could be abused by bad guys to do bad things, but this debate is was already solved again in traditional security. That building offensive tool is a good thing. So we have there was a long debate like Metasploit Toolkit, which has a collection of exploits for everything. It seems like and why why would you release such a thing? Why would you send it out to the public? And the benefit to defenders far outweighs that someone trying to abuse it. People who want to abuse tools like that, they have they used to have other toolkits that were privately distributed between them and they did what they did. We already have exploits in Web3. So what's why would it be so bad about building tools that teach defenders of how their protocol could be attacked so they can build defenses around it? Or training monitoring and defensive tools on what an attack would look like so they can proactively build signatures and detect those things. So mm. offensive tooling is, it, it's, there's, I don't think there's any ethical debate. Far out, the benefits far outweigh any possible abuse for that same tool. Mm. Like Foundry is an example. Foundry made exploit writing and simulation infinitely easier. <laughs> infinitely easier. I, like, I remember just writing first exploits in Brownie and it was already like, oh my God, I can build this in Brownie. This is great. I can write test suites. Mm -hmm. But then Foundry came along where I can, with the cheat codes and all the other tools that they have available, and I can write everything in Solidity. So I don't have to like constantly hop through different languages. And it made it not trivial, but like a lot easier. So is, should Foundry be banned? Is it bad that we allow people to write POCs quickly? How about all the auditors that can now write POCs and illustrate why the thing that they're reporting is a problem to developers? So they actually go in and fix it instead of writing it off as informational or, oh, that's too hard to execute. They see this POC and they say, oh, yeah, you just drained my, my contract. Yeah, this is bad. I'll fix that. So yeah, I think with any, any technology, there's always going to be the unethical side of it, um, obviously. 
yeah, I think it's just human nature, right? There's always going to be the bad side and the good side that comes with everything. Uh, for example, AI, sure, it's going to be amazing um, of the capabilities, but there's also going to be the negative side. For example, for example, the deep fakes, people using that to distribute like false videos of people, like nude, for example, or making them say something that they didn't actually say. But then on <laughs> the other hand, you know, it's... It's capable of solving, you know, questions and answering questions, basically creating its own Google, right? Which actually chat GPT, which I used on the daily, by the way, I actually use it yep. more than Google now um, because it's just a, a great tool. Uh, prompt engineering, it teaches you how to ask questions better because that's exe- essentially what you're doing. And so that helps you problem solve, etc. There's just, you know, so many benefits, but with anything new, any any kind of technology, there's always going to be someone trying to abuse it in some way. So I agree in that sense, and especially since you know if you have a functioning exploit tool, and you can use it to generate proof of concepts, right, and disclose everything basically on the blockchain. Now you just run through everything, and then try mm-hmm. and disclose it, try and you know tell that, and then you can really release it, and then start upgrading, and then once you make a patch or an upgrade, you can do the same thing. So in that sense, it, it will also encourage developers to use that tool on their own protocols, which in turn would up the security entirely of the space and maybe spark some ideas for other people, you know, when they when they see some... Add it to gate- their pipeline. Yeah, exactly. And stop gate- gatekeeping information. Um, but ultimately, it depends on your goals, right? <laughs> if you want to make it open source or if you need to make money or whatever, that usually is the main contender. The right end now. result is as long as it's available from what one me- some means, then developers themselves will benefit. I think there's a lot of, I think we need to spend more time on defense, even if by providing, providing offensive tools to developers, to builders, is helping them with their defense ultimately, right? They can. Mm-hmm. Whatever contracts they deploy, that's yet another scanner that they can push through. They can tell them ahead of time that, hey, there's an exploitation vector for your contract. Please be be wary. Or another scenario, when you describe mass scanning the entire chain for any vulnerabilities. So an example here, like what happened with Balancer. They figured out there was an issue, and then there was a race to try to notify all the pools to pull liquidity before they're exploited. And they were too slow. Well, they ended up losing money. Mm -hmm. They saved the vast majority, but they they were still, they still lost. Imagine how many other balances could you save by proactively reporting vulnerabilities like that with a responsible disclosure, privately give them time to fix their issues, or if necessary, we do a white hat hack to return those funds back to customers or to the project themselves before the bad guys do. Hmm. I think the and, one, oh, continue, sir. Oh, uh, I was just going to say like being able to do this on a mass scale instead of letting attackers like poke at each protocol one by one and trying to play this like whack-a-mole. like, oh, we'll fix this protocol or that protocol. Yeah, yeah. Having like whole scanning the whole chain, looking for whole chain um, as a, as a body, of, of your, for, your, for the analysis and then mm. notifying those projects individually, that would be a good service to, uh, to the ecosystem. I think the one thing with, you know, white hacking before like, let's say a black hat, and we've seen this a few times, is that I guess there's a legal implication of that as well of, okay, if I white hack hack this, it's still considered a hack and illegal. 
And so you have to take, it's like a risk they're taking on as well in that sense. And I, I guess they wouldn't really do it if they think about that. Or maybe they would, who knows. But, you know, and then there's like that play of, you know, am I going to go to jail for this? <laughs> or is What if gonna... you mess up? What exactly, if your intentions right? are good, but you mess up and lock everything up? Which, which is, I've seen live as well. Uh, like someone executes a white, a white hat hack. They didn't know about MEV. They get front ran and someone else steals it. And, you know, it's very discouraging because I think the white hat hacking is very, you know, it's probably the riskiest kind of thing because first of all, if they don't pay you or they don't want to pay you, then you're in this predicament of you just did all this work and, you know, you have the option of, you know, telling them or not telling them. Um, but then there's also the option for, you know, you're at the mercy of basically the protocol because you're telling them they have an exploit. And so they're going to go look, regardless if you're going to give them or give it or not. Um, they know there's something critical and then they might not even pay you or might downplay it to be, it's not as critical or just, you know, just shrug it off. And then at that point you're, you're just like, wow, okay, cool. Obviously it like tarnishes their reputation, but it's still, you know, uncertainty. And, you know, if you do an on-chain white hat and you try to like quote unquote ransom it or, you know, sell it to like the protocol itself, then, I mean, then you take on all legal obligations and all that stuff. So it is very mm-hmm. difficult. Um, and I think the solution for that is building something that allows basically like zero knowledge disclosure of hacks and like an objective amount to what is, I guess, paid out. So I guess a standard is like 10% or whatever it's whatever is exposed. So if you build like a project, but everybody just comes to consensus and, and registers for that, then you can be like just deposit that, I guess, hack in some way, right? And then get paid out for it. And then they're just notified or, you know, they get the hack. Something like that. I think it's, I think it's uh, essential because... Yeah, white hats are just not in a good place at the moment. Well, I mean, ultimately, you have to make a decision for yourself. What is it that you're optimizing for? If you are optimizing for profit, then you should stick to protocols which have open bug bounties and report them through bug bounty process. If there are bad actors, they will be removed, so you're running some risk. But for the most part, bug bounty hunters, they profit through all the contests and so on. If you're optimizing for user security and you truly you want to help the ecosystem, and by that, you're really helping yourself as well, then you will have to make choices where you disclose a bug to a protocol which doesn't have a bug bounty, which may screw you over and say, just thank you, here's a T-shirt. Thank <laughs> you for your service. <laughs> but ultimately, you go to bed thinking that I just saved the livelihoods for thousands and thousands of people who are going to also go to bed tomorrow and not going to think how they're going to pay for college for their kids. That's also a pretty good feeling. Then there's the technique you're optimizing for technical uh, reward, and that's a reward in itself as well. Mm-hmm. But you have to just choose for yourself who you are. <laughs> so know thyself. And then, and then, that's that's that that will drive your decision process. So because no matter what technical solutions that you try to build, if it's too hard and a white hat, they feel that it's just easier to just hack this thing and then just you know ransom them for a ten percent reward, they'll just do that mm-hmm. if it's too hard. So it's a it's an open debate. Another another question is like what if we ask protocols that come online 
to simply introduce them to this concept that if at some point you are approached to buy someone who is a, I don't know, a card member, card-carrying member of the White Hat Society, that you agree not to prosecute them if they follow a certain process, such as not trying to profit from this, not trying to force them into a certain dollar amount, just ethical agreement between DeFi protocols and White Hat researchers. It's an open topic. I don't think there's an easy solution because here we're not dealing with EVM bytecodes, we're dealing with human nature. And that's very hard. That's a lot more variables to solve for. Oh, yeah. It's infinite complexity. <laughs> um, but mm. again, the, the white hat process works. I'm not a fan of uh, what people do with the ransom payments because for, I would imagine, nine out of 10 times, you could have contacted the protocol and told them, hey, guys, there's a problem. Here's the problem. Here's how you can hack yourselves if you want to, and maybe feel free to sign up for a bug bounty program instead of going in and hacking those projects and then waiting for that 10% to return the funds. It's basically like ransomware, but on chain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I guess it, there's also a consideration of, you know, if I don't do this hack now, then someone else might get it. So That's why, like, there should be an, a, a clear, this needs to be written out as a well thought through agreement, like general agreement between projects and white hats is that if there is evidence that there's an imminent compromise mm. and that the only action that you can take is the white hat hack, then you will perform this white hat hack and protocols agree not to sue. Mm. However, you cannot, if you do that, you can maybe ask for a compensation for gas, but you cannot tell and dictate the project that, oh, if you don't give me 10%, I'm going to keep the rest. I'm not, I'm not going to give it back to you. That's, that's extortion. <laughs> yeah. So then it's just like, they basically agree to it or, or they don't. And then you're just stuck with, I guess I think for like any kind of there needs to be some platform where they can agree to or being like okay you can hack us if and you can keep ten percent just send it to this wallet if you do hack us but then you know majority or just let us, let us know ahead of time yeah and I think another thing is a lot of projects out there I think majority of them don't actually have public presence in that way they might have just been like some random dev exploring somehow a lot of people aped into it. And now they, there's a hack there and you can't actually contact them. Uh, I guess you can only. Yeah, so then what do you do? Uh, uh, yeah. If you're, again, if you're optimizing users, so maybe it is the right thing to hack that protocol, but allow users to, to retrieve those funds on their own. And that recently happened. There was a, there was an attacker who stole, I, I have to look up the exact project, but it was the first time I've seen something like that. The attacker mm. stole the assets, put it in the contract where users themselves could claim the full amount from the contract that they previously owned. And they could also leave an optional tip to the attacker. Maybe that's the new way to do this. Mm. So if, if, if you're optimizing for users here. Yeah, I think that might be the, this kind of sounds like the best way, technically, because, you know, when you do, you know, white hat, you're actually just taking the user's money. <laughs> Um, like if it's a 10%, right, then you're taking actually 10% of all the users' money and then they're left with, you know, 90%. But if you do that kind of, you know, optional tip thing, it's like, oh, they can reward you for saving them. 
and maybe they'll mm -hmm. actually give you more. But uh, I think that's probably the most ethical in a way. Um, I have to follow up on how that the whole thing concluded. It's a social experiment, right? Can we yeah. let the users decide how much they want to contribute of their saved money? And that solves two problems. The first problem it solves that those users will probably never deposit those same assets into the protocol that was vulnerable, right? So that removes bad actors on the on the DeFi provider space. It saves mm -hmm. user users funds. Mm. Um, it still leaves developer liable, right? The protocol may still decide to target them. And then the liability thing is tricky, right? Because even if the protocol decides to say that they have nothing, they have no legal issues with the white hat, there could still be a government action for market manipulation, right? That's what we're watching with Mango. That on the one hand, Mango, even though they're saying that now under duress, they agreed not to have any legal action against Avi Eisenberg, right? But then the, the SEC lawsuit, they're, they're not trying to claim that he made any damages or to the protocol. They're focused on the fact that someone perpetrated market manipulation. That's a crime in itself. So it doesn't matter. The protocol itself may not even have a say of who does or does not get sued. Right, yeah, because any basically any oracle manipulation is that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a, a whole complexity dilemma of what to do, which will, I think will only show in time what the right thing to do is. Um, but for now, it's really just like... There's, there's just a spectrum of safety. Who, yeah. You have to make a decision for yourself of what is it that you're optimizing for. Yeah. The safest route is to reach out to the project, let them know, and it could go in the vacuum. Mm. And then you follow the 90-day responsible disclosure process. Mm -hmm. So that worked really well in traditional security where you say that you have 90 days to fix your protocol or I'm disclosing it publicly. And then in those 90 days, you could also publicize, just like Balancer did, there is a, there's a vulnerability in this protocol. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but people are advised to pull their funds to save themselves, right? Yeah. it's But then that also marks the start of a race of like a black hat trying to find out what it is. It's like a double- That's exactly sword. what happened with Balancer. Is the second they made that announcement, everyone swarmed and figured, and they eventually figured out, I think it was a few days it took them to figure out and weaponize the exploit. Yeah, it's a super interesting space. I'm keen to see how, how it all evolves as well. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time, though. I think this was a terrific chat, and I very enjoyed it. Um, thank you so much for coming on, first of all. And you know, great to chat to you uh, as well Pleasure. for the first time. Same. And I'm very interested to see how Block Threat evolves and how your career evolves. I think you're you're on the right you know track to being on like the elite side. And I think you already are on the elite side, but it, it'll be very interesting to see how we both progress in this field. <laughs> um, and we'll definitely keep in touch, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and I appreciate your thank time you. and I'll probably talk to you again in the near future. <laughs> we'll be happy to take care. Take care.